The idea of job security is outdated as a landline. If you haven't been in a search for a while, it's probable you will at some point, by choice or not. Most executives admit to staying way too long or sense what's coming and justify staying anyway. Here, there's another reason. The faulty belief that navigating to what's next will inevitably be worse and has to suck. Screw that. Lauren Greif has spent a lifetime in corporate and executive search, calling bullshit on stale career advice that most still use. This is Career Blast in a Half, the career podcast for executives ready to cut past outdated career advice to fuel your outcomes now. So let's go. You know what? I am here today with a colleague and person I greatly admire and respect in the world of careers. And I often refer to Jacob Warwick, who is here today to talk about his five steps of interview mastery as the GOAT. And the reason why he is the GOAT is specifically around areas of negotiation and also around these five steps that we're going to talk about today as far as interviewing and mistakes that we make. And, you know, before we even get into the whole concept, of interview mastery, a little public service announcement. If you believe that you're excellent at interviewing, heads up. This isn't the kind of thing where you could grade yourself. What do you have to say about that, Jacob? Yeah, we were uh, joking a little bit in the green room about how some hiring managers and astute recruiters will almost throw red flags up and be cautionary towards those that are very well-polished, overly researched and perfectly spoken in an interview process because they wonder, how are they so damn good at interviewing? Do they talk to these folks all of the time? Are they constantly looking for work? And when that's matched up with three or four positions of 12 to 18 month tenures or short stints, this particularly happens in the startup world and in tech world. It raises a lot of red flags that you're going to have to be pretty smooth to talk through and understand how to, and we'll, we'll talk about conversational ownership later, but how to talk ahead of those things and set the right impression. Uh, and then further, uh, a lot of executives don't have to interview that much. Sometimes they've risen to the top of their career by working through their networks, those that believe in their work push them forward. Hell, some of them don't even have resumes or a LinkedIn presence and hey, they're still doing quite well for themselves and understand that, well, this may be something I should polish up to protect myself through tough, tougher economic climates, or maybe their company's experiencing some layoffs. They survived a round or two and kind of wonder, maybe my head's on the block too. Some things to just be prepared for. Yes. I um this is kind of one of those Goldilocks things, right? Where you want to be good, but not too good. And you want to be prepared, but not too prepared. And so when we were chatting right before this conversation, you said that one of the biggest misnomers or missteps in, in a, even approaching an interview is thinking that you need to impress. And so What's the better approach to that? So I found, and in, in particularly with executives that are creating the right opportunities for themselves, they're not necessarily a perfect specialized cog in the wheel type approach. 
it's more about finding alignment. Uh, this is particularly important for those that are working towards having a more fulfilling career life themselves. If they have boundaries they need to meet, they want to work hybrid or remote, they want to work a certain amount of hours, they need certain needs met, maybe they need some PTO every once in a while for childcare, those types of things. It's more important to find an employer and an opportunity that reaches alignment with both your lifestyle and your skill set. And so you don't need to necessarily impress them with all of these things that you've done in the past. Oh, I have 10 years of all of this excellent stuff. What's most important in any job is your ability to perform the role moving forward, not necessarily all this great stuff that you've done in the past. So the, the key tip here is that you should be asking astute and open-ended questions along the way to understand the real needs of what the role requires for success, uh, as well as any tangential things that weren't thought of yet, or things that aren't in the job description, or the changing tide of the economy, or recent funding announcement, anything that's happening with the company that they don't have a solution for yet. We need to start exploring those paths and understand, oh, I, I thought this role was specifically about marketing per se, but it turns out there's a pretty heavy need for business development or product support. Maybe I'll lean into some of those skills and show them that I'm aligned in these areas and that will help you rise in the candidate pool as well and differentiate yourself from the competition. Mm. Who may just say, I'm the greatest CMO since sliced bread. Look at all this stuff that I did. Amen to that. Alignment. Alignment. And I, I like that you put the caveat around there. You know, For people that are looking for something a lot more than what is just the J-O-B, who are looking for a level of fulfillment. As we get into your five mastery steps, share with us that first mistake that most people make when they, even when they're considering, oh, I'm about to go on to an interview. What is that mistake that they have both practically speaking and in their mindset? Yeah, I think the greatest mistake that probably any job seeker or anyone interested in changing jobs typically makes is too much concentration on their past performance and not enough Again, alignment, I'll use that term again, alignment for their future performance and what moving forward looks like. And in a way, the whole system and all of the channels that we have to find jobs, um, I think you have a great pyramid on this. It's backwards, mm -hmm. right? You go through the ads and before you get to a personal network and that's, it's kind of backwards. And maybe you can um, share a link to the resource there for that because I've, I've used that with some of my clients. It's very powerful. But ultimately, we focus a little bit too much in the past. Our resume is a chronological rundown of our past. Our LinkedIn is usually stuff that we've done in the past. And very few times does it point to the future of what we're doing next. And so when we don't tell people where we're headed, leave our future up to someone else's hands or their assumption. So what we'll see often is a lot of linear paths. Marketing manager, director of marketing, senior director of marketing, VP of marketing. So it's linear in nature. Typically, the assumption is that you want to go up and to the right because more is better and that's good. And so when we focus on all the things that we've done in the past and less on the things that we want to do, what we find is eventually we hit a ceiling of what we're capable of. We start to plateau in our careers. And I see a lot of folks will just spiral in that same spot. Mm -hmm. And that often happens with compensation as well. You get up to about a quarter million to 350,000 a year and you'll be there 15 years. 
It was mm-hmm. in that exact same spot, plus or minus 50 grand, depending on market fluctuations. And very few people actually move forward beyond that because you have to start negotiating and having conversations beyond your current skill set and solving problems before they've happened and being a force multiplier in areas that you weren't even being interviewed for in the first place. So I think what that translates to for someone heading into an interview, they think, man, how do I tell this story of this thing that I did six months ago perfectly? How do I... How do I better explain that weird gap in my resume? Or how do I, you know, put this layoff in a good light, right? They focus on all these things that happened in the past when they should be asking, why is that relevant to this particular role? Does that even matter? Right? You can talk about all of the specialized experience you have in, we'll say Salesforce and the company doesn't even use it. Don't care. Right. They don't care about all these great operational changes that you've made or this leadership thing that you did for this other company in another industry, it's not really that relevant. But they, what they do need to feel confident moving you forward is that they can trust you to do the work that needs to be done. So I think oftentimes we spend too much time thinking about how do we talk about stuff in the past instead of how do I know how to ask the right questions to understand what needs to be done moving forward and if I'm the right fit for doing that. So This really dovetails very perfectly on the next kind of the first area of the mastery trilogy, whatever the five version format is of trilogy. I just wanted to say trilogy, but you talk about creating a lasting impression. So what I'd like you to do is take that example of whatever we were talking about in the past and how would you then convert that? It is something that was forward thinking that would add a lasting impression. Yeah, part of leading the lasting, lasting impression is to understand what it is you're trying to set in the first place, right? Setting that goal coming in. So in the, we already talked a little bit about the, the big aha, which is stop trying to be impressive and work towards alignment. And you found that if you can psychologically get the interviewer or the hiring manager, whoever it is you're speaking to, to be thinking in the future, let's say six months down the line, nine months down the line, solving problems. Uh, in sales, we call this selling the vacation. You're talking about the future set that it's going to be, you know, working with me is going to be great in this context. Imagine six months down the line, we're sitting around the table. You know, we've hit our, you know, the last two OKRs and we're leading the team and we've grown this much. What's the next challenge? Right. So we're starting to, get forward thinking about what the company could look like with you as one of the solutions there. And that leaves a lasting impression with the person that you're speaking with versus someone that's like, wow, this person did all this impressive stuff over, let's say Gartner, you know, great Gartner or the Cisco, man, they have such an impressive background. And they're seeing that as your competition. And when they think about you, they think about all the things that will be done in the future and how success will look like moving forward. And you're solving the problems of the people on the call, not just talking about yourself. So I found that that helps leave a, uh, a lasting impression there. Absolutely. I mean, really, I think that the other, the other issue is, you know, what you always have, you even taught me this, you know, successful executives know what they want. So it's not like you want to just hang out there and, and be passive about it. It's okay to be able to essentially put that message out there about what that future will look like. 
Because if you don't, then you're playing a very, a very low bar game. Yeah, or you're, uh, you may be interviewing for roles that are in title only mm-hmm. and not necessarily the type of scope that you're interested in taking in your career. And, and this mm-hmm. is particularly a conversation for more experienced senior executives, totally. not necessarily first-time ones. A lot of first-time executives will find themselves in roles that are highly tactical because they focus on getting the job, but not necessarily setting the vision for all the things that they're going to do. Oh. And what often happens is they, when faced with the unknown and not having alignment of what the future looks like and what that, what that path forward is, they will default into doing more of the same of what got them into that position in the first place, which is typically working your ass off on tactical things harder than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so that will only get you so far in your career. Uh, you can be the most dominant functional leader in the company. Say you're the best marketer in the world. That doesn't make you a great CMO. Right. right? Unless you're a force multiplier across product and engineering and operations or all the other departments, unless you're making an impact there, you will not be in that job for longer than a year. Out. So those are some facts right. to be mindful of. All right. Well, with a turnover in the C-suite at the marketing level, CMO is about 40 months. So that's the new benchmark, right? Those are, those are better benchmarks than I was expecting. So. No. All right. So the number two is the easier said than done uh, situation, which is sustain a composed mindset. All right. And I like the way that you've put this. I actually have a note here that says, go read about stoicism. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. So tell us about what you mean when you talk about sustained mindset. And I guess you could call it the drip campaign that you talk about for your interview and uh, in discussion with hiring managers. What does this mean? Well, let's talk about being on the spot. I think that's something that people will be fearful of in an interview, being asked about something in the past that may or may not be relevant to the future role that you're working in. And what I mean by sustained mindset in this is that you can be asked the most challenging or intimidating questions and it shouldn't break your composure. Even if you're like, man, that's a stupid question. Why would they ask about this? So what I found is that too often, and this is across the board, not just with executives, but too often we're too quick to respond Mm -hmm. to questions that we have really no business answering in the first place on the spot. Now, it's amazing what you can do when you buy yourself 10 seconds to think about which situation to frame. And it's amazing what you can get away with if you just ask a question instead of answering immediately. So if you, you were to say, and I'll give an example of a dumb question, and this isn't against anyone that asks these questions, but it's a relatively dumb question and we all will kind of get to the point here. So Lauren, yeah, I'm, I'm interviewing you for a CMO role. What's the best go-to-market strategy for our company? the company that you've known about for all of about an hour now, right? What's the best go-to-market? You know, I'm so glad you asked that, but I actually have a number of questions that I really need to get some clarity up before we would engage in that, that piece of the conversation. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a couple of ways that we can answer this, but thank you for not, you're deferring, right? Until we ask some questions. One of the things that you know, this is an opportunity where you can show your research versus saying like, hey, I looked up the company, right? You may say something, and I call this a preamble, right? Well, 
we could probably spend three hours at least just getting into the nitty-gritty details of go-to-market strategy here. Now I have, you know, let's just say an initial framework that I may follow, but I, I have a hunch that that's probably a little too generic for what we're looking for right now. I would start off with, you know, I'm considering these competitive. Maybe you go over some of the gist of what you know about go-to-market, right? You know, we could go start with strategy. We can do some competitive deep dives on name three of their competition. And I saw that they just did a press release on this. And so you're sharing a little bit of the research that you did. But before we move forward on getting the real meat on the bones of a go-to-market, let's ask some follow-up questions here, right? Ultimately, what needs to be accomplished for the investors in six months, right? What do they need to see so that you feel good going to the next board meeting? And then we're having open-ended questions. And what we're doing here is we're moving the conversation forward rather than, Lauren, what are your thoughts on go-to-market? Because every damn go-to-market is different, right? It doesn't matter. Tell me about a go-to-market you've done in a similar situation three years ago. Well, three years ago, AI wasn't a thing. Damn. So useless. And then what happens is maybe you tell the best go-to-market story ever. And then they go back and they confer and they go with all their other CMOs. And they go, you know what? Really liked what Lauren did. But I think she's out of touch and outdated because she didn't even mention AI and, and the possibility here, even though right. the question was all centered on the past. Yeah. So hanging out taking, past, right? Yeah. But taking a moment, it doesn't matter how difficult the comment, like the question could be. You could take a moment and, you know, they actually teach this in the, the meta and the meta interview stack and the Google interview stack, but they, they teach that. Uh, when asked a difficult question, pause for a second and say, will you give me a minute to write out a couple of solutions here? And I think this is more for like product managers and yeah. middle, but an executive is usually not going to get away with that, but they actually teach you to pause the interview, stop so you can think about it, which is interesting. Yeah. And to be fair, Facebook managers make more than most executives. <laughs> so maybe they're onto something. The next one is the one that you alluded to in the beginning of this episode. But I think that most people really, really have skipped this one or didn't even know it existed, which is counterintuitive, which is taking that conversational ownership. One of the things that really, really resonates with me on this one is FYI, people not everybody is a great interviewer. A lot of them really, really suck. So tell us what that means. If you are in a situation and the interviewer is just awful, how do you take conversational ownership? What does it sound like? What does it look like? And why is this not a risk, but actually an area to develop some level of reward? Yeah, and this is this is again particularly catered toward executives, and it looks different at each stage. And the reason it's catered towards executives is that assertiveness is typically, especially the velvet hammer type of assertiveness, where you can be direct but you're not pissing everyone off around you. Assertiveness is a trait that we often look for in executive leadership. And if you're talking to, and I'll I'll hear this often um, from frustration from from execs out of work that. They can't get past the screen or they can't get past the recruiter because, well, they don't even know what I do anyway, right? Like, it doesn't matter how good I am and tell them they're not moving me forward, right? They're kind of upset that they're not talking to somebody more astute through the process. And it's a, it's a bit ridiculous because you should be playing the person, not necessarily just talking about your background. Again, you should know better. And if you're taking ownership with a junior recruiter, you might say something like, hey, I imagine that 
you know, you've got 50 to 50 to maybe even a hundred CMOs to reach out to. What made me stand out to you? And what are the four or five boxes that I need to tick so that you feel confident handing me off to Carrie or whoever the hiring man, like you've already done your research. So you know the name and you're playing the person, not necessarily. And you know that the person needs to tick boxes so that they can feel good about themselves handing you off, right? You know that process so well that you can lead them through the process and eliminate as much friction as possible and hear their tone and how they're saying, well, we're really looking for someone like this. And then it'll help you adapt your story as appropriate to move through that situation. Now, in a hiring manager situation, it may be a little bit more difficult, right? But in this case, the thought process here is don't just stand around and wait to be led through the interview. Don't wait for questions to come your way. The challenge with this is that you're always on the back foot and you don't know what I'm going to talk to you about. Lauren, what are your thoughts on cats? Right? Why would I be bringing up cats right now? <laughs> right? That has nothing to do. It's actually my turn. That is an example. Hey, oh, here's this thing. What is this thing you did 15 years ago? Tell me about it. And you're like, whoa, I wasn't prepared for that. Like you're always on the back foot. And when you're constantly on the back foot and wondering, how am I going to say this? How am I coming across? You're slowly losing. You're losing confidence. You're living in your head and you're behind. But if you take ownership and say, look, Lauren, I imagine you're going to ask me four or five questions about this particular article and we're going to do this on the podcast. These are the three things that I'd like to cover today too. And maybe we'll probably answer some of those and, and maybe we'll run out of time and have another conversation after, right? For example, if one of the five things you want to ask me is about go-to-market, well, we're going to need to schedule some more time for that to get into the, the nitty-gritty. And so I'm taking ownership by telling, look, for me to fully articulate go-to-market to you, it's going to take three or four times as long, but here are my initial thoughts. Let's ask some follow-up questions. Yeah. Uh, this is so good because it really is, it's almost like like extreme engagement, right? You're actually spoon feeding their wants and needs. And it's really less about the actual, it's not that cookie cutter back and forth, right? It's not that rally or that volley that's going, I said this and you said this and I said this and you said this. It's much more of a, a much more, you know, aligned and strategic approach. Sorry to use those words again, but they really apply. Number four is drive the interview. So this is not the same as conversational ownership. And I really would like you to break those two things apart because I really want to make sure that when you are driving the interview, it means something very specific on how you are conducting yourself during that very short window of time that you have. So what, what does this mean with with the engine, driving the engine. Yeah, I'll start with the uh, the too long didn't read version of this. To drive the interview, you should pretend that you already have the job. Amen. That makes it much, much easier. Pretend that you had just been hired as a consultant, but you don't know what you're consulting on yet. This is particularly important for executives because it's your job to get to the bottom of problems and solve them, right? Again, this is going back. It's not focused on the past. We're focused on the future consultant, you've already got the job. We don't have to worry about your credibility, why you're in the meeting in the first place. You've got the job. Now, what questions are you going to ask to drive the interview forward? Right? Mm -hmm. Tell me about your plans the next six months, 18 months, three years, whatever it is. Oh, I see that the competition, let's say you're IBM, right? I see that Xerox has split their company apart and they're 
they're multiplying in these new regions. What is IBM going to do about that in the next five years? Right? Here's a couple thoughts that I have, right? Because you're the consultant, you're already the expert. They're coming to you for help. They're not coming to you for permission. Right. Right. And you're not asking them for permission to give your expertise. You already are so confident that you have the job that you need to get to the bottom of what's actually going to help them, whether you're the solution or not. And that's a big piece. And I don't know if I talked about it in this particular article, that this is something that I'd like to add to this section. And that is to drive different distance between your competition by talking mm -hmm. about your competition. Say, give us an example, put it in real life. So in this case, it's about talking through the pros and cons of what the competition may have that you don't and listening to the cues of the interviewer to see if they're going that direction or not. Ultimately, what you want to get them to do is verbally affirm that what they're looking for is you. Okay. And so as an example, I'll use, I keep going back to CMOs. I'd imagine your audience okay. is much more diverse than marketers now, but okay. So you're coming in as a CMO. You might ask a question and, and this, this is, can also build your value compensation wise. You might ask a question and say, you know, why hire a CMO right now instead of two or three more tactical folks that can get into the weeds of that content management and this sales system or whatever? Why not hire those three more junior folks? Ah, see, what well, we're looking for someone is senior. We're looking for someone that we can rely on, who we can have more autonomy, whatever they say, right? Cool. Now they're giving you hints on how to sell and tell the story, first of all. And they've also come out and said, look, we're not going to change our mind and go hire three junior people. So there's one, Okay. Why not work with one of, a, one of the established agencies, right? Might spend a little bit more money here, but you'll get XYZ members of the team, all of this diversity of experience, all these things. CEO had a bad experience with agencies. They always think it's a ripoff, blah, 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 right? Whatever your alternatives could be. Let's say you're a man. Why not hire a woman for this role? One that has these skills. You know, why not do that? You can be as courageous as you want on who's different than you. Why not hire somebody with twice the experience as me? You know, ultimately what you're determining is you're getting them to talk themselves out of all your competition. And so you'll know so if, you're, if you lose if you're them. a senior level candidate, right? And let's just pretend because this does show up a lot, right? You're really concerned about ageism. Yep. And you would use that same strategy, right? Why don't you just hire somebody who's, you know, identifying themselves as, you know, mid-level or says that they are, you know, young, right? So you can do this in a few ways. You could say, why not hire internally or promote someone within? Any way that you can possibly think of losing the interview. I'll mm. do, deal with this all the time. Like somebody's three months into an interview. I'm like, yeah, they just went with an internal hire. I think it was bullshit that they went through the process in the first place. Why, yeah. Well, why didn't you challenge the internal hire thing? Right. Because if you go through the process and say, why not hire someone internally? Like, yeah. Well, we don't really have anyone on staff with that type of skill set yet. What type of skill set? Oh, the one that I have. Great. Cool. Um, the ageism one's interesting. You might word it in a different way, but I, I typically battle ageism with just playing a different game that kids can't play the same. So what happens often is they'll be, especially in tech, there's ageism's pretty prevalent, right? But tech, you know, kids are coming up, they, they have the software skills, they know the new, new products, they, they're all into the new tactics and they're into AI and everything. And here's this, let's just say, older person 
who doesn't know all the same things. Yes, they, they're beyond Microsoft Word and no Gmail and stuff, you know, whatever. They're still spreadsheet. They're great at it, right? But they're not doing all the new techniques. What I've seen is that the, sometimes the older generation will try to compete with the kids and say, look, I picked up these skills for these tech things. I picked this up. And ultimately, what you're doing is you're lessening your experience to try to play someone else's game. So let's say I, I, I will equate this to you're playing Connect Four with kids instead of chess with adults because you're focusing on something that they're really good at and trying to compete. Instead of saying, you know, one of the things that I bring to the table is that I've been through three economic downturns and I've built a team out of it. I know how to deal with complexity and chaos and come out on top. Now you tell me a 25-year-old right. that, oh, first of all, a 25-year-old right now has only been through economic good times for the most part, right? They can tell a COVID story, but they can't tell an 08.com bust or anything like that in the past and how they've come through it or how market fluctuations change. So you're playing a different game. So the ageism thing, let's, you might say, why not hire somebody who knows all these new software skills and do this and, and get them to affirm, well, we'd rather have somebody that can be more of a coach and inspire those types of folks to grow up into the type of leaders that we want. Now they've verbally recognized that you, again, would be more like the answer there. So there's a lot of different things. Why not hire somebody with more functional expertise? Why not hire somebody that has recently been in a position like this? I've been out of work for six months. Whatever your insecurity is, you can call it up and get them to verbally affirm that it's not a problem. And then you know, if you lost that interview, well, you've at least narrowed down the reasons why that could have been. Mm. So that's what I mean. I love this. I love this because this is not only creating that gap between you and the competition, it's also doing some sneaky little, you know, takeaway sales with respect to your candidacy. And lastly, it really does help to position you as a solution, right? Because they're basically telling you that here you are, right? It's like gives you permission to go and share that story as the, as. Well, and this is a psycho, uh, psychological hack is what you're doing is you're forcing them, you're giving them a reputation to withhold. So mm-hmm. when they verbalize and they say, I will not hire three junior people, by human nature, we want to remain accountable and consistent with what we say we'll do. And so now there are people that ignore that, right? I'm not saying that's tried and true, but typically speaking, when somebody says they're going to do something or not do something, they follow through with that because it damages their reputation if they don't. So when you get them into a situation where they verbalize the things they're not going to do, they're more likely to go your direction. It's the same. This is how some negotiation stuff works. You know, Lauren, I always appreciate that you've been an advocate for me and that you've referred clients my way in the past. I always appreciate that. And then you say, oh, I, that's totally good with me. I've now asked your neurons in your brain to think through referring me clients. Mm-hmm. You verbalize them and you're more likely to stay consistent with that moving forward. And now you're not going to send me anyone and I understand. That's okay. <laughs> that's not true. That is so not true. Okay. So here we are. This is like a simulated situation here. It's the last five minutes and you know the interview is like coming to a close, right? And so give us the most common mistake that people make in that last five minutes and what that solution is. Uh, Typically, they ask what's next 
and they leave it on the other person to determine the next uh, steps. That's typically the worst. If you were in sales, you'd get fired for doing that. If you talk to a client or a prospective client and you didn't have a follow-up scheduled, your sales manager would fire you because that's like sales 101, right? So look, let's say we have, you know, I want to be mindful of time. That's often, that's something that executives will say. I want to be mindful of your time. Looks like we have about five minutes. You know, every time I talk to you, Lauren, it's always very engaging and we go over time, right? It sounds like we may need to book some more time. I'm available next Friday at four o'clock and then again on Tuesday at three. Does that work for meeting with the rest of your team? Where if I know their names, better yet, if I use that, right? I'm steamrolling the fact that, do you want to meet with me again? No, I'm assuming you do. Our conversation was engaging. You know, we didn't get as deep into that go-to-market question. I didn't answer that as, as, as detailed as I expect. And I want to put some thoughts into that. So I'm going to noodle on that over the weekend. And then when we touch base on Tuesday, we'll go over the details of that. I've given myself homework to provide you value in the future and ask to be on your calendar. I didn't right. say, when do you want to talk again and what do you want to talk about? Right. And you also didn't say, and I'm open all next week, right? Because then it's like, that's not good either. So, you know, I think that, I think that a lot of people, regardless of how senior they are, also leave the interview like with it completely ambiguous. They don't know how many more interviews. They don't know who they're going to meet with next. They don't have, they have not set that stage. And then many cases, you know, they say, I think it went well. You think? Yeah, you should know. And ultimately, you use the word ambiguous. I might use the word passive or subservient to somebody of, and this is tricky because we lessen ourselves to the people we're speaking with because we want something from them. We mm -hmm. want a job. So we naturally become more subservient and naturally yield to the power or the leverage in the situation if we're getting into negotiation language. They have leverage over us. They have something we want. And when you think about the words subservient, passive, ambiguous, are those words synonymous with executive leadership? Hell to the no. So if you're feeling that way, I'd argue you already lost the interview, mm. right? Or somebody more assertive, more dominant. And I want to be careful with the word dominant because I don't mean that to be right. you're not like aggressive, that. right? Yeah. But somebody more assertive, somebody that leads those next steps, somebody that has and takes conversational ownership and directs someone towards an outcome, they're going to come in and eat your lunch and you will not, you will go on another interview on another interview and you'll be really good at talking through all the stuff you've done in the past, but you won't win the deal and you certainly won't get to the negotiating table. Uh, okay. So here we go. We're getting into our three signature questions here because I could literally like, I could spend a month at the Jacob Warwick School of Interviewing and Negotiations, but for the sake of brevity. Here's your first question, Jacob. You know, I know you're an avid, voracious reader. If you were to suggest a book that people should either read that is predicated on great interviewing tips and or something else related to this conversation, what would that be? I will not give away my best resource, but I will give away the gateway resources. Okay. Sorry, Lauren. Uh, I would say the best for most executive negotiating situations would be getting to yes 
the negotiation book. This is really, I have pros and cons to that, but that book, but mostly it's focused on win-win situations, which is typically what you want if you're at least a semi-decent executive or human being, right? You have to work with these folks in and out. So typically a win-win situation is going to protect your reputation in your career more so than reading a more cutthroat book on negotiation, which is about like win-loss or even loss-loss or like scorched earth policies or things like that. So go ahead and start with that. Recognize it's foundational work, getting to yes. I would also add influence by Robert Cialdini. If you can keep it. If you work those two together, you'll be relatively unstoppable. Mm. Next question. What is the post-it that somebody should put nearby their desk if they are thinking about interviewing, if they're in the middle of an interview process, if they are preparing for what? I'm going to lean on a quote from somebody else. And... It's more centered around negotiation than interviewing, but, and we didn't get into this, but uh, I'll consider your first interview as the first step to negotiation, right? A lot of folks get that wrong. Uh, and this comes from Chris Voss, but it's never be so sure of what you're worth that you wouldn't accept more. Mm. And so you shouldn't be so sure of what you're capable of that you wouldn't take on new parts of the role. You shouldn't be so sure of how much money that you want to make that if somebody were to offer you more, you wouldn't take it, which means you don't vocalize things first. You wait to listen to what's needed and then you adapt accordingly. Mm. So instead of saying, you know, I've, you know, I want to make $250,000, right? They're like, buy with me. I was going to pay you 300. Right. Right. You, you got ahead of it. There, it serves you no purpose to share your number first. Mm. It serves you no purpose to say, I haven't done that. I haven't done this. I haven't done that before you even know if it's a need of the person that you're talking to or under what circumstances. Exactly. Right, because you could have a lot of constraints and that could increase the price point, right? Or there could be yeah, a divergence. Right. And if you're asking questions, they should naturally change anyway. Last question. What's your walk-up song? My walk-up song? Good. So you got me listening to some of the Bee Gees. more. <laughs> oh my uh, God. And I want to say, this is this this is just getting me hyped for no reason, but More Than a Woman is like getting me really hyped. <laughs> like, Wasn't that the song that your wife was listening to? Which she yeah, interviewed? she was listening to it. Yeah, she was listening to that and when, when Noah was entering the world. And of course, I'm like, at the birth of my child, and I've like thought about you, face, <laughs> thanks for being the number one be Like, this is the weird, wrong. something psychologically is wrong with me. I'm like listening to the, now every time I hear the Bee Gees, I think about you. So that, that, that might be one right now. And then, you know, it changes all the time. I mean, oh my I, God. I, I sh- you're the first person who's been on this podcast that actually said that. And I know that you're not kissing up to me because that is just not your style. So no, I want to be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I totally no, know that. Like my wife made a, like a 70s playlist, like all these kind of old, older playlists. And it's just chock full of the Bee Gees now. So like, We'll go from 70s. I shared a white trash playlist with some of my, oh my, my clients God, earlier. It was corn and Nickelback. It was terrible. Just absolute garbage music. And, um, you know, I can get hyped to just about anything. So, yeah. So, Jacob, where should people come and find you? I just want to make sure because I know that you've been busy with your daddyhood and uh, have been taking just a tiny little break from LinkedIn. So, where should they go? Honestly, if somebody sneaks in to send me a text message, that's my favorite. 
that that requires a lot of digging. But um, www.thinkwarwick.com is fine. There's a contact page there, and I'll get it in the email within a couple of days. I I used to brag about having a very short response time, and now I'm like, yeah, three days is fine. People can wait a while. I love it. Anti-selling here, Lauren. I'm anti-selling. <laughs> Always, 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 always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jacob, for everything that you have done for me and been so generous in sharing your knowledge and a great, great, great value added last year today. So we'll look forward to episode 23 coming up and uh, appreciate you so much. Have a great Thanks, rest of your day. Thank you for joining today. We appreciate your listening ears big time. We ask this, use these tools, not tomorrow, right now, and share them by spreading the love, leaving us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss the next career blast in a half. Most of all, thank you for you.